Hi, my name's Madalena Kay, and I'm the host of the podcast AI and You, produced by Europod in partnership with Podium Podcast, Agence France Press, and Cora Media. In AI and You, we deal with the history of AI and how it is having an impact on our lives. From social relationships to employment, from climate change to wars and security. Is AI changing our world for the better or the worse? Come and check it out for yourself. Subscribe to AI and You wherever you listen to podcasts. Europod. This is Europe Talks Back, a podcast that uncovers impactful stories from across the continent. We work with independent journalists to cover stories on the ground. In today's episode, we'll take you behind the scenes of Europe Talks Back. Our producer, Maria Dios, will take it from here. For today's episode, we have invited Sophie Smith. She's our reporter on the ground from last week's episode, which uncovered a story about post-separation abuse in the UK. Sophie is a Belgian-British journalist based in London. She has worked as a freelancer for national outlets, including The Observer and Private Eye magazine. Sophie, welcome. Hello, happy to be here. Sophie, for the behind the scenes of Europe Talks Back, I always start by asking our contributors to introduce themselves. So can you tell us about yourself and about your work as a journalist in the UK where you're based? Yeah, sure. So my name's Sophie Smith. I'm a freelance journalist from London. I did a master's degree and graduated over the past year. And then since then, I've been doing a lot of freelancing. So I've done some sexual violence stories, some domestic abuse stories, and some other sort of investigative bits. Thank you for that overview. I see that you are specialized on gender issues. So let's focus on the story you covered for us. This is the story of Charlotte. And to meet her, we traveled to the south of England. What we can say about her is that Charlotte is a mother, but above all, she's a fighter. And although her name has been changed due to security reasons, her story brings us a muted truth. The system that was supposed to protect her failed to recognize her journey as a victim. And she has been forced to fight her abuser in the so-called family courts, taking her child away from her. So, Sophie, this can be an introduction to the episode you wrote for us. But in case some listeners haven't checked the previous episode yet, I would like you to tell us why this story matters, why they should listen to it. So let's try an elevator pitch. So the episode is about Charlotte, but also I guess she represents a lot of different women in the UK who have to go through the family court system. And it just basically explains what that looks like for them from start to the present, really, because it, a lot of the time it doesn't really finish. And basically how um, their abusers, because of the court system in the UK and how it's private, as long as they've got the money, they can continue to bring court cases basically against them if they have a child and use it to sort of keep controlling them. So in the episode, I really wanted to focus 
on the sort of bigger and smaller issues that Charlotte faces every day or throughout the years and how these are ignored and often actually enabled by the UK legal system and also the police. I have to say that it was really frustrating and heartbreaking listening to Charlotte saying how it was almost impossible to demonstrate the violence she suffered because the police didn't pay enough attention or didn't want to or weren't educated on gender violence cases. But for me, it was also revealing to understand how this impacted her mind. As no one believed in her situation, she didn't consider herself as a victim at first and she just carried on. So I was really moved when later on in the story she found her old journals and read all the things her perpetrator did to her and she decided to call 111 and that moment she recognized her case as what it was. So do you believe this was a turning point in her personal story? Yeah, I mean, in a way, I think because it was physical when she sort of first left. I think she did realize that she was a victim in some ways. And I'm sure that after that, that sort of settled in. But the real turning point in that moment was that she realized that a lot of the emotional side of the things that were happening, a lot of the psychological things that were happening were also abusive. So the way that she'd been feeling was sort of validated in a way. And yeah, it was really sad to see that uh, when a medical health professional who were obviously trained and qualified told her that that was something that she needed to go to the police for, they turned her away, which just goes to show you that a lot of these things are just actually about luck. Um, it depends who you get. Yeah. And for you, how would you describe her or what was a moment in this story that really moved you or opened your eyes in some way? Well, I've been working with Charlotte for this and I worked with her on something else which she ended up contributing to but I've sort of known her for a bit of a longer period of time which is why I approached her for this and what really struck me from the beginning was how she'd come out of a situation and really managed to change it for herself even though other people thought that she couldn't and the odds were kind of against her you know she trained herself while looking after her really young daughter while being accosted with all of these custody battles um, while she was being taken to court she managed to go to university she managed to get a really good job and now she's a really successful woman and I think that in some ways it sort of shows you that you can still do anything even if no one else supports you but in other ways I think it shows that just a little bit and um, not stereotyping someone and just sort of thinking oh well this woman's a victim of domestic abuse, so where is she going to go? And just giving them a chance really kind of allow them to do that for themselves. That's what I really like about her and I really liked about her story. I agree. It's, it's really powerful to share also kind of positive, if I can use that word, stories to empower other women to speak up or recognize themselves. So this is a story of resilience and it might be the story of many other women in the UK. What can you tell us about the scale and impact of post-separation abuse cases in your country? And why do you believe it is not fully recognized? Post-separation abuse is, I mean, I don't have the exact figures on it because I don't know if there are actual figures on it, but it's a huge problem. 
There are about 2.1 million domestic abuse cases every year, which happen within that year. So if you think about that in terms of how much that opens you up to post-separation abuse or people who just continue to live with their abusers, that's huge amounts of people. And the problem with post-separation abuse is that everything, at least in the UK, is focused on the moment when you leave your partner. So all of the campaigns, all of the support services you can get, which are government funded, are all focused on sort of the act of leaving. And it's sort of seen that once you've left, that's it. You're fine. You're not a domestic abuse victim anymore. And obviously what you see with Charlotte's story, which is the same as for many other people, is that that's not true because even if they that's what they want, that's not what happens because people continue to come back for them and they allow to do so because of these courts. And I just think that that's one side of it. And I think the other side of it is that it's really hard for the family court to take that on board and to understand because of it's hard to get records of domestic violence and just because of how they operate. It's, it's really difficult for them to sort of go, OK, well, we're just we realise that this is just someone making false allegations and who wants to keep bringing someone back to court and they just allow it to happen. So I think that's part of the reason. And I don't really know why they do that, I guess, because there's such a big culture of disbelief and people just don't believe women who say oh actually that man abused me they just think that she doesn't want to share her child but if you think about it that wouldn't really make a lot of sense in most situations because why would you not want to have that extra help why would you make it up looking at the future is it going to change anything in the legislation there in the family court system that will help Charles' case or other cases similar to this one no so there's um the family courts there aren't really any legal changes happening there there has been a change in a couple of years ago in 2021 there was the domestic abuse act which defined different kinds of abuse. So it included post-separation abuse as a form of abuse. And currently there is a bill, which is just like a law that goes through Parliament, but it's not a law yet, which is supposed to help victims of domestic abuse as well. But these things in some ways already exist. They just don't have the funding and the government hasn't committed to any more funding. And in terms of the family courts, there's not really any change in the pipeline for that. So You know, without that happening, you can fund or put in law that domestic abuse victims can have as much help as they want, but it won't change the situation in terms of them being taken back to court through this family court system. And there is also a massive problem in the UK now, which is getting worse on legal aid. So getting help to pay for solicitors. So people like Charlotte just have to do it themselves. Or, I mean, I spoke to a woman the other day for something else that basically ended up having to quit her job because the only way she could get help to pay for the legal fees was to be unemployed. And it didn't actually make financial sense for her to continue working and, and pay them. So you sort of have these people in an impossible position. And once you lose your job, other problems obviously start happening. So to be honest, it's not It's not changing for the better. And there's a lot of lip service. The police and other people saying, you know, we have all these tra training programs. We understand what domestic abuse is. And they spend a lot of money putting campaigns out, which doesn't necessarily translate to people like Charlotte. But there are a lot more smaller charities which are being started, mainly by 
survivors themselves. So, you know, like Charlotte has a charity and that can really help people. But in terms of the government, it's a tricky it's a tricky situation and it doesn't seem to be getting any better. However, you end the episode describing Charlotte as a tireless fighter. So I guess she wants to fight by bringing attention to her story and to see if with transparency things might change. Do you agree? Yes, of course. Sorry, I forgot to mention in that, that like I said in the episode, they're doing a pilot of the transparency of the family courts. I forgot to mention that. So that is a really big thing and that will hopefully create some change because at the moment, because the family courts are so private, no one knows what happens in them. And it's really hard to say, look, here are all of these people who are having these really terrible court cases because you just don't know what's going on and it's really hard to report on them. So the fact that they're trying to have people in certain courts at the moment If that goes well, it might mean that they open it up to all of the courts and that would be, it wouldn't be a massive change in itself, but I mean, it would be, but it wouldn't change someone like Charlotte's situation, but it would mean that that change was more likely to happen. And yeah, so for Charlotte, I know that a massive driver of her wanting to speak to me, for example, is because she wants people to know what is happening to her and other people. And that's really important because without that, everyone just ignores it and everyone doesn't really know what the issues are like. So yeah, she is fighting for change. Yeah, I guess this speaks about the need to share information and speaking the truth and of podcasts like your Talkspec. So Sophie, thank you very much for working with us. It was a pleasure to meet you. It was a pleasure. Thank you, Maria. As our conversation with Sophie ends, it's time for our typical press review, this time on gender-based violence. Violence against women and girls is one of the most systematic and common human rights violations globally. Currently, no legal instrument explicitly addresses violence against women and domestic violence at the EU level. But this is about to change. Last July, the European Parliament and the Council started negotiations over a directive on violence against women and domestic violence. As highlighted by Politico, this proposal aims to establish minimum standards in EU law to criminalize several forms of gender-based violence across the member states. According to EU statistics, One in three women aged 15 and over has experienced physical or sexual violence. But there's not a lot of other data available, especially on murders. While all EU countries count traffic accidents and deaths separately, for example, many don't do the same with domestic violence and gender-based killings. The directive could mandate better data collection and empower EU-wide statistics. Yet, physical violence is just the tip of the iceberg. Nowadays, the internet and technology serve to facilitate such violence against women. 
That is why European Project is identifying different forms of harassment that occur online. As covered by El País, the lack of data and legislation led the European Institute for Gender Equality to perform a study over the past two years. This study identifies nine areas of online abuse, stalking, extortion, intimidation, harassment, gender-based hate speech, non-consensual use of intimate images, trolling, doxing, and using internet-connected household devices. We have reached the end of this week's episode of Europe Talks Back, a podcast that uncovers impactful stories from across the continent. This show is part of the Esfera Network project and is available on Europod. Our sound design and mixing are by Jeremy Bouquet. My name is Maria Dios. Stay tuned for next week's episode, where we will travel to Spain to talk about mental health and social media. Bye.